Welcome, fraud fighters, to another episode of the Digital Trust and Safety Insider Podcast, brought to you by SIFT, the leader in digital trust and safety. In this episode, part two of Beating the Odds in the Global Fraud Economy, SIFT VP of Trust and Safety Kevin Lee is joined by gaming industry veteran Dom Squayo as they discuss emerging fraud trends in online gaming and how to protect your business against evolving attacks. If you haven't heard part one, check out recent uploads on resources.sift.com. And don't forget to subscribe via SoundCloud so you never miss a thing. So in terms of these different forms of payments, like if you had the stack rank them, like what what are the most risky or susceptible for fraud? And what are some of maybe the, the safer bets here in terms of forms of payment? So, um, you know, risk is really, you know, defined by the operator too. So, you know, risk rules, risk controls, and and their technologies that basically manage, we'll call it the operational piece, which is like, how do they get money in? How is it processed? And so forth can dictate some of the risk. But, you know, credit card and debit cards continue to be one of the highest risk methods um, when it comes to, you know, uh, transactions, because Sometimes there is obviously a level of, you know, we'll call it unknown, you know, when someone's actually in possession of their car and depositing, you know, identity is obviously, you know, um, part of the process to onboard a customer required by regulations, but then adding a credit card or debit card, there is, you know, not enough information to, to base whether or not that car belongs to them other than what is traditional in that e-commerce space, which is ABS, CVB, which tends to be obviously very much relative, but but it's not always the source of truth when it comes to whether this person belong. I mean, this person's car belongs to them, and so that remains the the more of the higher risk methods. Um, obviously, digital wallets, you know, is, is you know is there as well, but you know, there's obviously some level of KYC onboarding for some other payment methods that are you know obviously available, which means that there are regular checks that take place to determine the identity of the account. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. And kind of switching gears a little bit to different abuse types or fraud types on the platform I was curious if you could describe a bit more around some difficult fraud trends or cases that you've had to deal with, whether it's firsthand or kind of in your consulting uh, experience. Well, I, I think, you know, um, you know, early, I, I want to mention this early days, we'll call it, and, I, and I'll keep referencing that, you know, in New Jersey, when acceptance rates were, were quite low, we never really saw um, the forms of fraud that we would see commonly in, in other industries. And so, um, you know, over time, the state started to obviously allow for, you know, online gambling, casino and sportsbook and even fantasy sports. Um, you know, the, the times that it took to obviously evolve to a place where it was more commonly seen um, was probably several years. But when I think about, you know, some of the, uh, we'll call it, you know, major fraud incidents or, or in my time, or what I would call like, like a, you know, like a, a fire, you know, and, and when everyone's like, oh, well, what do we do now? Um, there was a lot of wait and see. Um, so we always like waiting to see something happen, which is very reactive. Um, but one of the fraud, you know, issues that I've seen that was very much starting to become more of a challenge was more so than that, um, finding, you know, obviously fraudsters that were committing fraud using, you know, credit cards and debit cards. But early on, when acceptance rates were so low, uh, we actually saw fraudsters that were actually very sophisticated to the extent where they understood that that component. They knew that there were some cards that didn't work. And so they were exclusively using cards that were 
allowing um, deposits to go through. And so one of the fraud incidents that I saw, um, this was, uh, we'll call it a group um, out of New Jersey. And the group out of New Jersey would basically have, you know, stolen identities, stolen credit cards, and part of their, their we'll call it MO, was pretty much opening up as many accounts as possible. So speed, meaning they were working together in a very much, um, you know, we'll call it, um, you know, fast path, trying to get as many accounts open, uh, funding the account with cards that were, um, you know, allowing deposits to be processed, and then playing, we'll call it casino games, specifically slots, table games, and so forth. And their goal was opening up as many accounts, trying to win, you know, big jackpots or, or big prizes, and then eventually withdrawing it out. And so that group that we saw um, obviously opened up a lot of eyes for us, but we realized that, you know, sometimes, you know, operators, you know, spend time trying to reduce friction, but ultimately they're not seeing some of the risk and some of the gaps. And so, you know, gaps that we were seeing were obviously just components of different payment methods that we were not, um, you know, we'll say evaluating their risks as well. Um, name checks on withdrawals and the processing of certain withdrawals for certain amounts made us realize that, you know, we would have to adjust and tune our alerts accordingly and also apply some friction along the way. So that's a great example of that because it, it also told us that the fraudsters spent time trying to basically test and, and, and see which what worked and what didn't. And over the course of time, we saw that fraudsters spend more time testing. And once they learn, you know, we'll call it the ropes, they were able to attack. And so um, over time, challenges took place, you know, for a lot of operators, you know, where basically there was large scale fraud rings that were taking place. And a lot of these, we'll call it um, fraudsters, spend most of their time informing their friends, their family and, and folks. And so it looked like, you know, there was obviously, you know, um, some form of time spent to actually commit that fraud. Yeah, you, uh, a term I often give uh, folks in the industry is I compare fraudsters sometimes to velociraptors where from the original Jurassic Park movie, if you remember, where yeah. they were testing the fences and essentially trying to reverse engineer it. And once they figured it out, then they could strike heavily and you know uh, make a large kill or, or really take advantage of the situation and it exactly. sounds like that's similar to what's happened in this space where they reverse engineered systems understood where uh kind of things that they could get away with and then once they found that soft spot like boom let's drive a truck through this particular uh vulnerability um exactly. you mentioned uh a term kind of uh, near the beginning here around things being quite reactive and one of the things i've noticed in the industry is that there's been a push maybe five plus years ago, things were quite reactive. And whether that's because of different tooling and rules and things like that, you would really have to get burned uh, before you could learn. And now lately, there's been more of a push towards a more proactive stance and kind of wanted to get your thoughts there on like, do you see that transition in the iGaming space as well? And, and if so, what does that actually look like? We do. Um, and, and, you know, just just to point out, um, you know, because of the issues, you know, with acceptance early on, um, I'll reference that again, you know, conversion and getting customers in the door and obviously competing, you know, in, in a market that's very competitive, you know, very, very much, you know, um, niche and, you know, only a few players in the space, you know, like ensuring that a customer, you know, is onboarded, gets their money in and gets, you know, is able to have a great experience is paramount 
um, to any operator. And so early on, the, you know, what I would say is reactive is obviously um, more of like adapting to obviously a competitive market. Um, now that obviously things have evolved and, and there's obviously a lot more, we'll call it, um, you know, access to the market, more states that have gone live and the problems that now have arise from fraud, which is obviously cost of operations, cost of, you know, consumer experience, cost of even chargebacks as well. Um, you know, operators are now looking to pivot and, and, and move towards a proactive, um, we'll call it approach and, and more so than not. It's also to ensure that, you know, friction is applied strategically, targeting, you know, in, in the right places, you know, you know, whether it's in during onboarding deposits or withdrawals, but also being able to then um, create behavioral um, profiles around customers to be able to understand what is a good customer, what is a bad customer, and what are a good customer that started with, with a site turns bad later on. And, and, and that's part of more of you know the future where we would hope to see and you know I, i'm sure we're seeing a little bit more um you know as, as you know months go by um companies are looking to to innovate and and technologies that wouldn't necessarily we'll call it work well in some other industries don't have the same we'll call it um perfect fit for for an operator and so what we're hoping to see is that technology start to um, improve, uh, innovation happens, and something to, to the effect of where there's products that are unique to the gaming industry. And, and over time, you know, I'm sure we're going to see a lot more of that. But, but going back to, to, to your question, um, I think it's really around, you know, trying to, to find the right technologies to really be able to be proactive where, you know, it's still reactive as it is today. <laughs> Got it. And I, I think uh, one of the things that, Okay, you and I have chatted about in the past is living that I'll call it spreadsheet life where yeah. you that that was your cue, that was your workflow tool. Uh, and you have to generate that thing, populate it. Maybe you have some friends or some coworkers that are also on there. You kind of divvy up the sheet and you go. And part of it's kind of fun because you are really hunting and pecking for those different fraud trends and rings. But uh at the end of the day, man, uh does it become a slog and it 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 becomes quite difficult to scale with all the different kind of uh, abuse types floating around in there. It does, it, it does. But yeah, and, and to, to that to that point, I think also, you know, um, fraud, uh, fraud analysts, you know, folks that do manage fraud risk, you know, for operators, you know, they're they're quite a, 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 a we'll call it a jack of all trades, right? And, and they're having to learn how to even like, you know, manipulate data, you know, create pivots, you know, run queries and be able to use multiple systems and be able to actually even work, you know, with other teams and communicate with them to be able to explain certain things. And so, you know, one of the things about being reactive also, it, it consumes a lot of time and, and also puts them, you know, someone in a position where they're working, you know, much harder than they should. So, yeah, I always say work smart, not hard, right? <laughs> Makes sense. You mentioned with the different kind of tools and technology kind of in kind of at your disposal today. Um, I was curious to better understand like what fraud tools are the most effective and are like what are least effective now? So um, I would say, you know, um, and, and I'll mention a lot more about this, you know, regulations, but, you know, um, every customer is required to, to be located in, in the jurisdiction that obviously allows you know, for whatever um, it is, right? So like, for instance, I'll use New Jersey as an example, 
um, you know, allows for casino, poker, um, sports wagering, and fantasy sports. And so location technologies that have to basically be used to, you know, be compliant, you know, for an operator to be compliant, be able to know where a customer is to ensure that they're playing in the, in the legal jurisdiction are, are also used, you know, inherently used as fraud tools. And so one of the best fraud tools that we, you know, I would say operators and, and, and you know, the actual fraud analysts themselves have is really location and device intelligence software that helps them understand, you know, where does the device is located? Where is this user located? You know, which um, users were on that device? When did they log in? Where did they log in? And if there's any commonalities between users that were actually using the device at that point too. And so um, that's really one of the, we'll call it the, the most um, you know, effective tools. Um, least effective tools is obviously going to be tools that allow you to look at identities, right? And you know, I know some fraud analysts in, in other industries use like tools that allow them to search, you know, whether this person is actually who they say they are. And with identity theft, that's really challenging um, to say the least. So those are the least, we'll call it effective tools, but location device um, tools are very, very effective when it comes to um, detecting fraud. So if you had a magic wand here and you could look at any signal or feature that you wanted to, like, what would it be? What would you want to give yourself or give your team? So uh, I, I always I always say to myself, if uh, if there was a utopia, right, for, for us, um, you know, what is that, right? What does ideal look like? Um, one, one of the things that's very critical is really around um, evaluating gameplay and, and a tool that can basically determine, you know, whether, um, you know, the activity that's taking place, you know, obviously during the course of the process of someone's, you know, activity, being able to determine if, you know, bet sizes, bet types, you know, also um, games that are prone to more of what, what I would say manipulation and, 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 and so forth. Having that ability to be able to decipher and 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 we'll call it even consolidate a lot of that data and be able to actually detect we'll call it that suspicious behavior from a gameplay perspective would be you know would be the most ideal way to to manage fraud because again having someone's identity knowing where they live having their device information and seeing their payment options is not always enough to be able to detect fraud so gameplay to me is part of that. And, and we've seen tools that can pretty much consolidate that and create those, we'll call it even risk profiles, profiling that, you know, that activity would be actually the way for, you know, fraud analysts to be able to not only detect fraud efficiently, but automation be able to, able to actually proactively detect it without someone actually reviewing the, uh, the account. Got it. And out of curiosity, what types of games are prone for the most abuse like are we talking like college football or like some niche tennis tournaments like what what do you look for in terms of like of course there's there's a super bowl that everybody's betting on yeah uh, but are there more like niche areas like whoa i don't know why this i don't know dog racing is so popular or something like this well i would i wouldn't say the sports in itself the actual sports but the types of bets so you know um Bet, I would say we'll call it even games that that have you know odds that are very favorable. So you know heavy favorites typically are going to be more prone to obviously you know froster being able to then you know fund the account, place that wager, knowing that there's going to be a heavy favorite you know uh, on the you know we'll say 
um, an outcome that's going to be very favorable to them to be able to then move the money over and actually, you know, we'll call it show that it was played through and then um, a withdrawal would obviously take place. So, you know, heavy, um, you know, favorite, you know, games, you know, um, teams that are, you know, considered heavy favorites um, on the casino side and poker side, you know, poker is very susceptible to, to fraud because obviously there's people that, you know, are on the table that you may know and play with, right? And there can obviously be coordinated attacks on, on that note. And then games like, for instance, roulette, which is obviously a table game that you can play, you know, um, pretty much hedge bets, we'll say, being able to put money into a bet that obviously you can hedge against. That allows for obviously fraudsters to be able to then move money out of the system. So those are really, I would say, the games to look at or, or, or the wages to you know, look at, but, but more so than not, you know, it, it can vary. You know, there's always going to be a different, um, you know, test taken by a froster to be able to then see if there's other avenues around it. Makes sense. Now, switching gears a little bit to more the the operation side. So internally, wanted to little, little, know a little bit more about what sort of metrics or KPIs do you use to do measure when it comes to uh, measuring the performance of your team? So, I mean, mo most most of the time, you know, the alerts that, you know, or, or we'll call it alerts slash reports that the operational teams are, are basically uh, reviewing, some of them have regulatory implications, meaning that if they're not reviewed um, in a timely manner or they're not reviewed uh, appropriately, you know, if issues occur, you know, that can obviously lead to some issues from a regulatory standpoint. So SLAs are very much, um, you know, key, you know, withdrawals, for instance, Obviously, it's part of, you know, the work that's done by a fraud analyst, you know, having a withdrawal being on hold, you know, being placed on hold, we'll say customers waiting for their money to go out the door. That's a component that we measure with SLAs to make sure that they're not only going out the door in a timely manner, but they're going out the door, you know, in the time that, you know, some in some cases, some regulations require you to process withdrawals within, you know, two days or four days or even five days. So that's one component. But, but secondly to that, you know, volume is obviously dictated by seasonality for sports wagering um, and time that's spent to, to review each alert. So there's obviously SLAs around that, but there's also, you know, the review rates. How many alerts are we reviewing, you know, on a daily basis? You know, how many times are we flagging an account um, that we deem suspicious? How many times we actually reinstate a customer? So hit rates and reinstatement rates are closely looked at. Um, but and we'll say in the more so focus around conversion, you know, some of the metrics that are more so consistent to like ensuring that customers are getting on the, you know, getting on the side, depositing, withdrawing. Some of those metrics are also used to basically we'll call it benchmark and ensure that you know the right alerts are are being you know we'll call it fired, and then also that you know customers are not being flagged. Where I mean, customers that are legitimate are not being flagged. Or for um, suspicious activity. Speaking of which, when you do come across those areas where someone does place a bet, maybe it looks suspicious for ABC reasons, but they actually turn out to be okay. Um, like, how do you go about measuring these, the impact of these false positives? Now, that's a great question. Um, so part part of the uh, you know we'll call it customer experience is ensuring that when customers are blocked. They're informed immediately. They're being notified of what, you know, why they were, we'll call it, you know, we'll say flag or block in this case. 
and being able to give them remediation, uh, you know, steps around it. So customer experience teams are pretty much, you know, we'll call it the central point of contact for some of these customers. And one of the things that we do measure is what is the ticket rates around, you know, customers that are flagged? How many times does a customer contact us for a restriction? How many times do they actually have to contact us again, you know, if they're subsequently restricted? And even the time that it takes to get them um, reinstated is also a measure uh, as well. And so part of, you know, um, we'll call it fraud management is really around customer experience. And it has so many touch points around it that, you know, fraud teams and times that I spent, you know, in my career, you know, we're, we're, we're closely aligned with, with customer experience. And one thing to point out is that not all customers are the same. We also have our VIPs and VIP customers who spend more money, who obviously make up a large majority of the revenue for some of these operators, that part is really more so a focus point and ensuring that those customers are also, you know, taken care of as part of that. But fraud, as you know, you know, when, when suspicion comes in, you know, customers blocked and it's a VIP, then obviously there's going to be a lot more um, for, you know, the teams to basically get that person back on, hopefully, um, you know, back on in a timely manner, but ensuring that that customer was flagged appropriately. Makes sense. One question around when it comes to working with customers in the teams that you've worked on or the, or the companies that you consult with now, what's your take on whether or not the risk analysts or the fraud team, are they contacting and talking with customers directly? And if so, is that via chat or email or phone, or is that funneled up through the customer support team and the risk team is actually on the side and you can't really talk to them specifically. They always have to go through uh, the customer service rep. So I, I, you know, I think one of the things that that you know, some you know, in some cases, you know, depending on on whether or not their operational teams are, are large enough, you know, you would have teams that are focused on certain tickets, tickets that would be derived from a restriction, you know, would would be sent to a certain team that would ha- you know handle it end to end, meaning from start to finish, being able to actually resolve the issue, but also have the fraud lens, and so. Um, you know, it really depends, um, you know, like, in, you know, teams that I've worked in, you know, some of the teams that we had were just focused on restrictions and those restrictions, when they happen, those tickets would be routed directly to those teams and those teams would be trained on fraud. But one interesting point is that, you know, in, 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 the, in the time that I spent, customer service teams that work, you know, in, you know, for, you know, online gambling merchants, are also, you know, partially fraud analysts, and they are our eyes as well. And so, when suspicion came in from a, from a we'll call it a ticket that was sent, you know, received by a customer service analyst, sometimes we would have the analysts themselves reach out to us, and we determine later that it was in fact fraud. And so, part of what we do and what we've done in the past is really train our customer service teams and our VIP teams on actually finding suspicious activity and being able to, you know, know the signals to really say, hey, maybe this is not really um, a good thing, you know, for us to talk to this person. Let's send it to the fraud team and have them take a look. As a former merchant, I definitely found that use case where sometimes uh, me being on the fraud or trust and safety end, the way that you interact with your customer support team can vary a lot. And sometimes it can lead to some animosity, some friction here, because it's like, the customer service rep wants to help and they have to deal with an irate customer. Uh, and if it's if, if it's the fraud team that put on that block or put on that hold, oftentimes the customer service rep can feel 
disempowered to do something. And then, um, and if the fraud team isn't taking phone calls, then it's like, well, what am I supposed to do with this, you know, angry guy on, on the line here? So I know it can put a, a tough spot um, for a lot of customer support folks. Um, and on the flip side to your eyes and ears comments, I'd say some of the best folks that I've ever hired for my teams came from the customer support side where they just had this inclination or a spidey sense, if you will, to detect some sort of suspicious behavior. And when a spot opened up on the trust and safety or fraud team, they applied for it and you know crushed it um, in a great way just because they were already ramped up on the company. They had rapport with the customer support team and it was such an easy transition. And um, it was great to get that kind of cross-functional growth and, and um, kind of promote someone into that, that this new team here. Yeah, that was a great point. And I, and I think it's, you know, part of, you know, the importance like collaboration, being able to like actually like, you know, um, have people like actually sit with a fraud analyst, like watch their day to day and also fraud analysts actually taking a look at, you know, the day to days of like customer experience um, teams and, and also even VIP teams and seeing what their day looks like. And I spent years working with those teams and I always found it very useful when you actually, you know, take away, you know, the the defensiveness of a fraud, you know, team, you know, and obviously a revenue generating team and being able to actually, you know, see the bigger picture. And, and one of the things I said was, you know, our job is to ensure that we get, you know, the customers that are legitimate, that are good through the door as fast as possible, but ensuring that we stop that, you know, um, people from coming in, but also, we protect our internal teams from those bad customers that could very well eventually create a lot more of, you know, we'll call it issues beyond just, we'll call it the fraud risks around it. Love it. Spoken like a true expert here. <laughs> so uh, kind of last question on the, the operation side, when it comes to cross-functional collaboration, so inter-team communication, what have you done or seen that's worked out really well and on the flip side, what have you tried that maybe didn't work out so well? Well, I think I think also you know, and and, and I'll, I'll mention this like and, and and you know, fraud analysts you know over time sometimes finds their specialty. I I, I use the uh, analogy like doctors, right? You have your general doctor, and then you have your cardiologist. You know, you have your neurologist and so forth. And so you know, fraud analysts over time they have their specialty. Some are really great at investigations. Some are really great at customer service, meaning being able to talk to customers or talk to actual, you know, people that are experiencing an issue that is fraud related and so forth. And it goes beyond that. Um, one of the things that I've learned and I saw that worked really well was really collaboration. Collaborating, meaning to the point where it's like having the fraud, you know, person talk to the the, um, the other team member and, and having team meetings and having even collaboratory meetings and like whiteboarding sessions to talk about issues that you know te other teams are experiencing that are fraud related or vice versa like questions that are that you know we'll say in this case like customer service website if i see this id and it looks like you know there's some you know we'll call it um um issues with it like what do i do like what what, what would be the best practices around evaluating like identification or even like documents and so forth and so that worked really well and what i what i saw over time is that you know, we were getting more, you know, customer service reps or VIP um, um, reps coming to us and saying, this looks suspicious. 
Um, what I think didn't really work well, and, and this is part of my time, um, you know, in my previous uh, experience, um, what really didn't work well is really just creating, um, the, you know, the boxes or the silos. And, you know, again, you know, fraud analysts, you know, like that, over the course of their time, they start to find a niche. And then, you you know, let's say you create a role, you create a team around it. Sometimes those niches um, create silos. And sometimes then you create, we'll call it that tension between other teams that you rely on. And so forth. But I still think like it's really important to, to ensure that, you know, fraud is always in the front of every organization's, we'll call it, um, priorities. And that's always been part of what I did was to bring it forward to ensure that business understood the importance of it, um, as you may know, right, over time. <laughs> Makes sense. Last question on my end, kind of given your new role as kind of this iGaming fraud consultant here, what's something that you know now that you wish you knew when you first started in this industry? Well, I, I wish I, you know, I knew that, you know, um, when it comes to actually this industry and, and you know, obviously I met a lot of people along the way. I, I, I wish I knew more about, you know, like what other people have seen. Right. And so, you know, obviously we, we work in a very competitive industry. Um, you know, sharing information is obviously a challenge. Um, but, you know, when you spend time talking to other you know, folks in the industry, sometimes they might have a different perspective. They might have a different lens. They might see things differently. And, and you know, what I wish I learned is that, you know, obviously, you know, fraud is a very, very much, uh, you know, we'll call it doing good. Right. And, and being able to collaborate with your peers and, and we'll call it other operators or other organizations that interact with operators in the fraud space being able to have those collaboratory um, sessions and being able to hear the perspectives because I learned over the course of time so many things that I didn't learn um, previously to that. So I, I would say specifically around, you know, we'll call it just industry trends and so forth. Awesome. Well, Don, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time out to chat with us today. It's been an amazing overview. Um, I know we just scratched the surface for a lot of this stuff, but thank you for taking the time out to meet. Uh, as always, anytime is my pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening to the Digital Trust and Safety Insider podcast presented by SIFT, the leader in digital trust and safety. For more fraud news and insights from our trust and safety architects, follow us, uh, follow us on Twitter at GetSIFT and check us out on our Fraud Intelligence Center at sift.com slash fraud hyphen center.